Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this BAFTA Masterclass running in conjunction with the BFI. Thinking about introducing John, I thought one of the most important elements in film in relation to costume design is that we find out so much about a character before they even open their mouths and utter a word. There's so many times when you're watching a film that you're informed about a motivation, about a mood, a tone, an atmosphere, or a certain element of a person's character just by the way that they dress, or even what kind of clothing that they're wearing. It's the subtlety of his work and his designs that are so remarkable. I'm just, just curious that you, you're, The Bostonians, the first film that you worked on, uh, you received a BAFTA and Oscar nomination for, um, and you won for this. Let's talk about the, the sort of a hoopla of actually turning up at the Oscars. And what was that like? Um, it's a long time ago. <laughs> um, we knew that we got a nomination. It's you and Jenny Bevan. Yeah. And I think about three weeks before, uh, there was a phone call from America to home saying, are you coming? And I said, yes, I, I think we are. And the woman said, I hope you are because I believe you've won. And you thought, you're not meant to know this. <laughs> <laughs> um, and anyway, we did go, and there was a lot of hoop bar. It was an extraordinary experience. But luckily, we'd been there two years before, and so we were a bit prepared for it. It, 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 it. It's quite interesting talking about your career because it is your second credited role, but you've worked on so many films and so many Oscar-winning films before that. Could we jump back? to your beginnings and right. this, why you felt there was, or that, when you discovered there was a gap in the market and you decided to set up Cosprop? It was a forced gap in the market as far as I was concerned <laughs> uh, because I'd always wanted to act and my father wouldn't hear of it. I had to have some sort of craft and so I went to Southwest Essex Technical College and did uh, a fashion course. There were no theatre courses anywhere near me where I lived. And so um, I did the fashion course, but all the time I was going to the college library trying to get it back on course with clothes of period times rather than uh, just fashion. Because we went, I think, in 1958 to the fashion shows in Paris. And... Uh, I thought, I don't want to be doing this because we went to Chanel, Balenciaga, Dior and the people who were watching the shows uh, were obviously extraordinarily rich but they were all of a certain age and beyond and I thought, this isn't going to be much fun um, I really want to do clothes if I can't act, then I want to do uh, clothes for film and theatre and so it's 1965, isn't it, you, you, you started? Start, I started Cosprop, yeah. And how quickly did it develop? Quite slowly, I think, to begin with. Um, I think the thing that started me off was I'd worked in repertory and got to know various repertory companies around the country. Uh, Colchester uh, was one. And so when I was about to start the company... It was known 
that there was someone who had this collection of clothes who could help uh, with their productions. And so I had that as a starting point. And so gradually it sort of built up. And then I think in the third year, uh, a friend again from theatre said, uh, we're doing a film of the Charge of the Light Brigade and um, we want you to do quite a lot of the clothes. And this is Tony Richardson's And it's Tony, yes. That seemed like quite an honour, really, because it used lots of people who were very well-known at the time. And so that was perhaps the start of putting period clothes on screen. And really, when you look at that film today, it's still very, very true to... That's magnificent. Yeah, it is. Let's move on to your sort of official start in film. I'd, let's start with Hugh Grant um, and that scene from Morris because I've, I found that fascinating that it's set in pre-First World War England and in the sort of very strict environment of university. Um, I'm just curious about the discussions that you had with James Ivory about how the costumes, the costumes are going to represent one character who's slightly more restrained and the other who's a little more open with his sexuality. The truth is there were never really any conversations <laughs> with James Ivory. With a room with a view, he, he had given us some direction in that he produced some black and white photographs by Alinari. And Ismail Merchant, the producer, had given us some colour brochures of Florence because I'd never been there and wanted to know what the environment was we were working within. The short answer is he didn't give us anything, but he seemed pleased with <laughs> what arrived. We've mentioned um, Jenny Bevan already, and yeah. the first of ten collaborations with her was on yeah. um, the Bostonians. Yeah. How did that come about? Um, it was uh, quite a, a difficult uh, thing. Jenny had been asked to do the Bostonians, because the person that they normally used, uh, Judy Moorcroft, had wanted to do the film Yentl. And uh, so uh, she only, I think, had five weeks to do it. So I said that I'd help her. And so I went away and did two clothes for a character we haven't seen there, two sort of outfits hoping that they would fit. We had some good measurements. And um, then we fitted Glenn Close for the Vanessa Redgrave part. Um, and then Glenn Close decided she didn't want to do that. She wanted to do the Horse Whisperers. Is there such a thing? Yeah, no, I think... It, no? it wasn't Jagged Edge. Was it Something it... with Robert Redford. Oh, gosh, would have been, I think The Horse Whisperer was a little later. Was it? Right. Well, but something it? with Robert Redford. Yeah. So she, she was out of it, and Vanessa took over. But, of course, when you think of the sizes between, uh, there wasn't anything we'd fitted on Glenn Close that would go anywhere near Vanessa. So we had to start again, and so I, I looked around at what we had, and we discussed what was possible and all the rest of it. And so we, we, we started on that journey. And halfway through the film, Jenny said, you know, you've done so much on this that I'm going, you're going to have half the credit. And so that was the beginning of it. 
And it's interesting, one of the reasons I thought this was a good scene is that you have these three characters, yeah. um, Vanessa Redgrave's character, then you have the more flamboyant woman who's the lighter colored dress, and then you have the woman who's sort of a, a clairvoyant. And again, it, it comes back to this idea that we're being told an enormous amount about character mm. through the colors yeah. that they're wearing. What have the discussions been between you and Jenny over the years about this? Do you, do you sort of go off and, and design characters individually? Oh, no, nothing like that, no. Often when we get casting, we have the person in and look at them in clothes of the period and try and get their reaction to them so that someone will we'll have found some outfit and put it on them and say, this is, this is more or less how it could be. And then you build up a conversation and you understand their likes and dislikes you try and keep all that in your mind when you're seeing other people and remembering which scenes they appear together, what the balance should be. But it's always, we hope, starts from the individual, the actress. And on a practical level, mm. uh, we've had numerous hair and makeup people coming, uh, yeah. artists coming here mm. and talking about the fact, particularly makeup, that, it, that they almost act like therapists in the morning for actors because they are the first person they yes. see sometimes at four or five in the morning yeah. um, and they have to gauge very quickly what that person's like. Yeah. Um, have you found over the years that it's, it, it's a skill or is it an instinct that you've always had that you, because of your work right from the start with Cosprop, that you just have to understand the person you're dealing with very, very quickly? Yes, you do. But surely the, um, the dressing up session, you do get to know somebody's likes and dislikes there's been a lot of uh, discussion uh, with Maggie Smith over the years about green, and she <laughs> mentions it in Gosford Park, mentions it in the fitting room a lot. And um, so you do understand that certainly green is a superstitious color in terms of theater. Apparently the color uh, is produced through a poisonous substance, and it could do... Um, something terrible to one's skin. So maybe that was early theatre. I don't know. But anyway, green uh, might be something that actresses don't want to know about. It's, it's interesting with Merchant Ivory because I, I became aware of them mm. um, with A Room With A View. Yeah. And I think it's a bit of a misnomer that they, they seem to be filmmakers that are so associated with 1980s British cinema. And yet by the time you and Jenny started working with them, they, they'd been making films together oh, for 20 yes. years. 20 years, yes. Sir. What was it like for both of you coming into what is a very close-knit family of creatives and, and sort of understanding the world that they worked in? Well, we'd both been working with them before, yeah. these two. Um, on the Europeans, yeah. I went out to where, uh, Salem, where they were filming, and Jenny was Judy Moorcroft's assistant. So they were aware of us, and so we were introduced quite early on, really. So, and so it was just assumed that we'd get on with it. Start with Howard's End. It's, mm. it's, the entire film, every single frame is chock-a-block with yeah. things going on in the background and artifacts yeah. and things yeah. like that. Yeah. And, and the, the costumes, the, the detail on the costumes, mm. like, particularly Vanessa Redgrave, who's not afraid to wear green. <laughs> I yes. um, let's start with a hat. Yes. Um, well, so Vanessa came to uh, have a dress-up session, 
we put various things on her to get the shape and the feel and to hear her reactions to them. And then, um, thinking of this scene, I put a dark beige cape on her. Well, not quite dark, medium beige cape on her. And I said, well, this is the shape, but I think we should make it a bit darker because it's winter. And she suddenly went, I don't want it to be any darker. I want it to be light. And I said, oh, yes. Why's that? And she said, it should be almost cream, and it should have a cream hat. But it shouldn't be fur. It should be, and I gave her the, the term, is it mouflon, which is a, a very fur-like felt. And she said, yes. So I went off to the millinery room because I knew there was a hood like it there. Brought it back, showed her. She said, yes, that's it. But the cape mustn't be any darker. So, in the end, I had this extraordinary bit of velvet uh, that is done in a process that we can't do now because I think it's, it's burnt out with acid. And so you've got Devore now, but you have this extraordinary patterned half-flattened leaf design. And so I thought, well, if I can't have a dark cape on the outside, I'm certainly having it on the inside, coming out. And so, uh, as you notice, there is this darkness down the side of her. And when she gets home and takes the cape off, then there is the green of the skirt and the bolero, uh, just to continue the look of that. To me now, all these years later, I think she was completely right to say that she wanted it to be light. Because in a way, she is the spirit of Howard's End. And so going into that uh, environment where everything was all over the place, lots of gubbins, as you said, everywhere, she is almost like a ghost going through it. It adds a dimension that certainly at that point I hadn't thought of. So once you had her sorted, yes. you have this fabulous contrast yes. with Emma Thompson's. Yes. And was it specifically in contrast or once again just about her character? No, no, no. I think, um, I think we thought that uh, Emma was the most direct, definitely. And so a navy suit and a navy hat uh, would be good. And there's yet another bit of detail in the fact that she's wearing something like a man's collar. So she has a slight mannish look, but it's a very soft mannish look. But the main thing about it is direct. And so the, the separation comes almost naturally between the two of them. Let's, let's move on to The Remains of a Day, um, which I think is a beautiful adaptation of a very beautiful yes. novel. Extraordinary. Um, but Anthony Hopkins, it really fascinated me to see, first of all, the formal Anthony Hopkins, who we see in the second scene, mm. which you, being, you begin to realize as the film progresses that this is, it's not just a butler's dress, this is yeah. a suit of armor. This is his armor, isn't it? Yes. And which he hides behind. Yes. And did you make any specific alterations to it? Or it was just not very really. conventional. Yes. It's, it's quite amazing. It just feels tighter. And perhaps yes. that's just the amazing performance yes. by Anthony yes. Hopkins. Yes. 
Yes. No, we had um, advising us someone from Buckingham Palace who had been uh, a butler, and so he, he would tell us all the different things that the job entailed. And um, no, I think it, that was very straightforward. But as, as you say, it is like a suit of armor, isn't mm. it? He is completely held in by it. So when we see him in something entirely different, which is this, this pullover, he is very, very vulnerable. And I can almost not look at that scene because I feel embarrassed for him because he's being definitely, um, I don't know, he's sort of being almost got at, isn't he? And he wants to hide still, but he's not got this uniform to hide behind. And it's, this is what I find so fascinating and so important with, with, with costume design in film is that we have one single piece of clothing mm. that tells us everything about mm. that character before the, mm. the actor starts That's acting right. or saying yes. a line. Yes. It doesn't always happen like that. <laughs> <laughs> because not everyone's playing a butler that has to wear something. <laughs> but um, certainly in that case, just extraordinary, isn't it? We're going to move on now to sort of late period uh, Merchant Ivory collaborations. Um, let's start with uh, Jefferson in Paris. Um, you have this very formal occasion, yeah. and you have to distinguish between who the French are, side of the king, yeah. and who the Americans are. Could you talk a little bit about the the way that you sort of looked into this and and just made the slight differences between the two cultures? The two separations that are definitely there are the king yeah. and Jefferson, and. Those are the ones one concentrated on. On the day when we were fitting them, we tried to make the French, as per the king and Jefferson's lot, a bit sort of up and down and more straightforward. When you're, when you're working on films like this, yeah. um, in terms of research, do you tend to sort of focus on certain people and then say, this is the look of this period, and so we're going... Get this, this is what the Americans yes. would have looked like, and so as so long as we're in the rough area of this. Yeah. With a film like Jefferson, it was so enormous that getting those clothes made was a complete feat in itself. I started in October making them in India. I think we made something like 250 outfits in India, and they would come from India in great bales and they were very, very tightly packed. <laughs> but some of them weren't um, uh, trimmed because there's only so much you can do in those days by fax and making sure the fabrics were right, making sure the shapes were right. To get any further than that was almost impossible. But um, So when they came, we had to uh, trim them. And luckily, there's a firm in Paris uh, called Soclotex, and we got just masses and masses of lace from them. And Jenny would organize in, in the workroom over there these dresses to be built on, where we were concentrating uh, at the firm with maybe Marie Antoinette and her ladies-in-waiting. All the rest would be processed in uh, Paris. I think of all the films over the last few weeks of yours that I've gone through, mm. The Golden Bowl is the one that really struck me because there are so many different periods yeah. within yeah. that one single film. That, that must have been an enormous challenge. It was. Um, 
and also the leading ladies um, are all very tall and um, that meant that most of the things had to be made or remade for them. Um, uh, Uma is definitely five foot ten and she had 18 outfits. Angelica is not far behind and she had 16. Kate is a little less and she had 22, I think. You don't see them all in the film, so no. we wasted our time with a bit of them. A bit of them. We don't see her in fancy dress, and um, that took about three weeks to make, I think, a fancy dress over, over the period. Um, but it was cut. Uma's um, uh, green fancy dress with a peacock oh, yes. behind is absolutely remarkable. Yes, I got very lucky with that. All the jewellery, or nearly all the jewellery on it, um, I found in Portobello Road one Saturday when I was there. And this lady said, I've got some theatrical stuff at home, which I'll bring next week. And I said, you know, what's it like? She couldn't really remember. And so um, she brought it next week, and of course, it virtually makes up the whole outfit. And I had bits that we could just put extra bits with it. But one thing that's interesting about colour and colour film is that the necklace that she wears, they're very subtly different. One is a greenish blue and the other's a bluish green. And when I first saw the film, it sort of did a funny merging together because it was glass and the light was hitting it in an odd way. And so I didn't actually get the separation that I'd thought of. But the rest of it seemed to work. Of the films that you've, you've been credited and worked on closely, how, how much of a relationship would you have with the cinematographers? Well, the first one, obviously, um, with A uh, Room with a View, his wife is a costume designer. And so um, he would look at a scene and he would say, John, should that man have white socks on <laughs> under the table? course, he shouldn't. Yeah. And, and Tony Pierce Roberts has done quite a few, hasn't he, yeah. of those. And so that's always been uh, a very good relationship. Um, I gave him terrible trouble one morning, a uh, scene between Emma Thompson and uh, Anthony Hopkins, because... In Remains of a Day? Uh, no. Or Howard's the, End? Howard's End. She comes up to talk to him to ask him something and they had planned the scene that she would come up to this side of him and it would be over her shoulder and of course that one morning I went to see the lineup, and I said if you shoot it like that the hat will completely block Emma's face and he said but can't she wear it around the other way <laughs> And I said, no, it's one of those things that it's completely one way. It can only go, and, you know, I showed him by putting it But, of course, um, so they had to re-block the scene. But it looks good. <laughs> Let's move on to uh, The White Countess. First of all, yeah. the racing scene. There is a very, very large number of people in that scene. There is. Um, he says with a very big <laughs> sigh. Yes. Well... They only allowed us, three of us, English, and we would have to use 
a Chinese team to do it. And um, they didn't immediately say how many people would be in the racing scene. And then I asked, and they said, oh, 600. And I said, but look, there are only three of us. You know, we haven't really got through to the Chinese, how we work and all the rest of it. And so he flew someone over to organize it. Um, but it, it was horrendous. And even on the morning, you know, to dress 600 people takes a large amount of time. So I went to Jim and said, where are you going to start in this scene? And he said, ah, I guess um, by the box office. And so I had to go to the box office of the racetrack, make sure everyone looked vaguely all right there. And then he said, we'll pan across. And then I, I knew that what was in my first area, and so I had about 150 people to check hats and whatever. On the Merchant Ivory films and subsequent mm. films, were you responsible for sorting out the budget in advance and of how, roughly how much something would cost? And how much of a challenge was that on a film like um, this? Well, there's never enough money, is there? No. No. <laughs> Certainly never enough time. Uh, it was on Jefferson where the budget had started out at half a million. And then over a weekend, Ismail had done one of his cuts and... Uh, Jim, the director, phoned me up and said, Jam, I don't know how this has happened, but it's only 450 now. And you think, oh, for goodness sake. Uh, <laughs> um, but again, because so much of it was made in India, using his secretary and all sorts of local people, uh, the stuff that was made there only accounted for maybe 100,000 of the uh, the budget and the rest of it was spent on the principles and uh, getting things done here. Let's talk about Natasha Richardson. Um, first of all, that, right. that beautiful white dress. Yes, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Um, I say it's extraordinary because it was out of a wedding train. You don't really see it in the film, um, but it's a very nice dress. Um, it's a wedding train that someone had bought for the series The House of Elliot. Yes. And we had made a waistcoat out of the top of it for one of the sisters in that series. And so there was this great chunk over. And so when we had to do this costume, which was because of it having little lines of uh, Diamante and things in it, I thought it would give it a bit more pizzazz if we use this. And I, I luckily had some material that almost matched it, but doesn't quite, uh, which I foolishly washed, and it went into little creases. I ironed it and ironed it, and Jill, who made it, ironed it and ironed it, but the creases still remain to a certain extent. But on film, the texture that creates works very well with the front of uh, the dress. Firstly, thank you for such an interesting talk. Um, and I was fascinated to hear about the way the costumes grow out of the actor's input and the fittings. Um, because what we see on the screen, actually, it always looks as if the costumes were really planned. And I wanted to ask you particularly about the costumes in Morris, both the menswear, because it strikes me that it's not 
creating a fixed repressed versus not repressed character, but rather all the main male characters actually change throughout the film and so do their clothes. But I particularly wanted to ask you as well about one instance of female costuming because it's the only bright colour in Morris is the moment when I think it's Morris's sister, Ada, um, turns up suddenly in a red nightie and he accuses her of coming on at Clive. Um, so there's this one moment when there's the red nightie standing out in the film. Um, so I just wanted to ask a bit about that, really. Ah, well, I think this raises quite an interesting point, really, because it's quite a dark red, and so what's happened is, and this happened a lot and drives you wild, is that something is filmed on one stock, film stock, and that may have a red bias, or it may have a blue bias, but then if it's not printed on the same stock, you're not going to get a true picture of what you intended. So what often happens is people will print a film on Fuji stock, and I think that must be the case here. Fuji stock, when you hold it up for light, has a pink bias. So any reds, however dark, will, will sing out at you, and it has the same effect on blues. Although it's very good for the producer to get a print that is um, quite cheap, because Fuji color is quite cheap, it's hopeless for us who have put the colors in there in the first place. Let's move on to um, your work inside of Merchant Ivory. Could you talk a little bit about the conversations you had with Martha Fines about the transition between those two costumes? I don't think there was a conversation. Oh, uh, make one up. Go oh, on, please, right. once. Oh. Make one up. It sounds oh. amazing. <laughs> yes. She said, I want this wonderful red dress, but I don't know how to introduce it in the film. So I said, why not have <laughs> this really boring but nice dress Go up to a door, throw the doors open, and then show this amazing red dress. Is that good enough? That's fantastic. <laughs> Brilliant. Right. There was no real conversation. The red dress comes out of the fact that Pushkin had an affair or whatever with somebody who wore a red turban, and so she wanted red somewhere right. in there. And you mentioned the hats with the soldiers in, in Twelfth Night. Yes. Well, it had a, a really, really small budget. And so to have any sort of feeling of fear or whatever, one wanted something in the soldiers that gave them this overpowering uh, presence for these people that were trying to escape from them and hide in the caves. And so I'd imagine that in the Charge of the Light Brigade, for instance, we see um, these uh, riders who have a very squat version of this, this hat. And I thought, well, if it was developed, what would have happened by the end of that century? And so I thought, well, it'll get bigger. And so I sort of thought, let's have it really quite big on the head, so it, it is overpowering. Uh, but, of course, a hat like that, if we made it properly, would cost something like 3000 a go. And if you've only got, I can't remember what the budget was, but say thirty or 40000 
you're not going to spend it on a group of soldiers' hats at the beginning. So they're back-formed, but because we only see them in that sequence, never again, you get the effect without spending an enormous amount of money. It's and the striking. uniforms were just um, jackets from army surplus, which we just put the collars up. It d didn't involve spending a great deal of money because certain things in the film had to be built to make sure that the boy and the girl looked the same. That sort of thing is where the money really had to go. We're going to move on to actually look at the, the practical side. You mentioned the, these helmets. Yes. Looking at location and extreme locations, Randall Kleiser's Jack London adaptation, uh, White Fang, and then move on to Bob Raffleson's Mountains of the Moon. I'm not sure if this is apocryphal, but apparently it is a story that Bob Raffleson, who's better known for films like Five Easy Pieces and The King of Marvin Gardens in the 1970s, um, wanted to make this film about John Hanning Spakes and Richard Burton's search for mm. the source of a Nile. Mm. And he went to see a Hollywood producer about funding and said, so Richard Burton is going out to find the source of a Nile. And the Hollywood producer nodded and said, so was that before he met Liz Taylor or... Painful? Um, yes. It struck me that, again, everything I need to know about Ethan Hawke's character is in that cap, which is so oh, yes. different from every other yes. piece of headwear yes. in that sequence. Yes. In a way, we'd fitted Ethan bef well before we got on location. And it was one of the things that, um, because of, he was extremely young, um, it was one of the things that would, when we mix the characters and at, certainly in um, a situation where there's snow and strong winds and things moving you have to have a silhouette that is entirely clean, clear, whatever so that you can see it in all conditions and um, so he had a cat and the other two protagonists one had um, a very shaped, uh, almost a fedora, yeah. and the other uh, a shape that was of fur with ear flaps. And so uh, you have three people that you can't mistake within whatever the landscape throws up at you. Um, but, of course, all that is done a long time before you actually see the conditions that they're going to be in. But Ethan's clothes, as with all the others in that, were done maybe a month before we started filming. As well as wanting to replicate this era of, of Jack London's world, yes. um, you are working with actors who need to keep warm. And you are. You, you yes. have, that, that's the interesting thing with these yes. two clips, is that you yes. have extreme temperatures. Yes. That's another consideration. It was uh, very cold uh, in, in Alaska, but not quite as cold as it should have been, because it was a Disney film, and they hadn't listened to the local people when they went up, and they said, we want to film this in January, and the locals had said, well, you'll have to be early in January because by February coming up, there will be water coming off the trees. 
and they didn't start until I think the 27th of January. And sure enough, in the first scene, which is meant to be absolutely freezing, water is dripping onto the hats. Uh, you know, and it, it was quite a nightmare, really, to get to uh, Haynes, Alaska, where uh, a lot of that was filmed, because you fly into Juneau, which is also quite difficult because it's surrounded by high hills. So if the plane is thrown slightly off, of course, they're always worried about it. And then when you're in Juneau, to get to Haines, you have to go in an incredibly small plane. Uh, the first one I went into was only a two-seater. So he said, you are the co-pilot. <laughs> that was useless because I couldn't even see over there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and it, I think it took 50 minutes to get from Juneau to Haines. Uh, halfway through, halfway when we were over there, I was looking at the glaciers, and then suddenly he said over his radio, um, I don't think we're going to make it. I thought, what? <sighs> um, what he meant was, we're not... <laughs> We're not going to make it that evening because the mists were closing in, and so we had to go back and wait for the next day. But it wasn't a very nice moment. <laughs> <laughs> and with Mountains of the Moon, the expedition that Richard Burden and John yeah. Henning Spake go on, they, they encounter various uh, tribes. Were you just designing the clothes for, for the explorers themselves, or was it all the different groups within that well, film? Um, I think he wanted to use as much as possible what was there and only add in what was necessary. Yeah. Certainly all, I can't remember the name of the tribe, but they turned up with their jewellery, but instead of being um, what it was, should be made of, it was all plastic. And so we had to do a bit of oddness there. But he he wanted all that sort of atmosphere that he could get that was natural. What that film does bring up is you see people in two outfits, but of course there weren't just two outfits. Mm. That means you've got their top jackets, their waistcoats, their breeches, their gaiters, but all those are, are prepared ahead of the film and then broken down to a certain extent. More of that will happen as you, as you go along. And you have that interesting element that the, they start off as, they're very different people anyway, but yes. physically, in their costumes, they're very different. Yes. But because of all the dust, yes. they gradually so they begin to together, look alike, and yeah. then they move away again That's towards right. yeah. the end, which is quite wonderful. If you haven't seen Mountains of the Moon, it really is quite a remarkable film. I have a question about cooperation uh, of costume designer with choreographer. Because when you are choreographing, you have to take into consideration the costumes. And for example, in Twelfth Night, you've got a sequence at the end when they are dancing in sort of 19th century style. Are the choreographers coming to you and um, or you are cooperating with, with them in any, any sort of way? In Twelfth Night, we knew roughly what would happen because it was an Edwardian dance. So Edwardian dance in Edwardian costume is fine. But in the film The White Countess, I had spoken to the director and um, discussed 
what we have. And he said, oh, just put them in straightforward evening dress. But of course, when the choreographer arrived from America, Carol Armitage, that wasn't what she wanted. She wanted to see legs that could go up to this level. She wanted uh, to make certain that they were completely free and they could do absolutely anything. Uh, and so I had to get out the following morning at about four o'clock or something and cut out circular skirts and sort of like handkerchief tops that the girls could then work as she wanted them to. Uh, but I had to get up and do it before the tailor would come in at eight to make them for use the following day. That wasn't cooperation. That was <laughs> nightmare. <laughs> if you're working in a studio or you have easy access to other materials, obviously yeah. that's easier. But you've made films where you've been on location and some extreme yes. locations. Do you have a sort of a first aid kit? Do you have a, a basic requirement that you would take with you everywhere that could kind of get around certain challenges? No, but it's a very good idea. <laughs> <laughs> if I was still doing film, I would uh, definitely think of that one. Um, as someone wanting to follow costume design in the future, how would you recommend best to get into the industry? Oh dear, don't do it. Uh, <laughs> this is meant to be one of those problems. Oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry, yes. Um, well, of course, I think that probably the best way really is to work on a film set. Try and get yourself attached to um, a film that's going on through friends. Learn about the basics of how it all happens. And then if you still want to do it, you could go to college and um, when you know more what you want to do, go to a college that uh, teaches um, the sort of line that you've got interested in. I f find it very difficult to advise at this stage because I have no idea, really. I don't yeah, know. It's, it's interesting because mm. we've had um, not just costume designers but, but makeup people as well um, so, saying two things. One, most people in the industry and anyone interested already knows um, it's not the easiest life in the world and don't expect 9 to 5 hours. Don't expect 9 to yes, 5 don't hours. don't expect 9 to 9 to 5 Oh, 9 hours. to 5. I yes. said 9 to 5. Oh, no, no, expect more than 9 to 5 hours. <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, Very good. But the other thing is um, don't wake up one day and say, I want to work with Scorsese because he already has Sandy Powell. Um, there are a lot of people making short films and it's, it's to actually find the next Scorsese, the next filmmakers as they're working up. Yeah. Um, because if you start working with them now, then when they move on to features, they will take the people with mm. them. So it's, it's kind of worth looking around with people of your own generation or your own age who are sort of trying to make yeah. films. Yeah. Um, you've talked a lot about colour in costume, but I was wondering how much you sort of consider like the silhouette of a costume and the shape of it, because a lot of the time a character will walk in and like their silhouette will be the first thing you see, rather than the colour of it? I think I've taken that for granted, that if you're doing something of a particular period, that you'll concentrate on the shape of it um, before anything else, really. And that's why this dressing-up session is really quite a good idea, because some people have certain shapes built into them that's very useful in certain periods 
but Harry hopeless in other periods. Uh, and so you have to try and use what you're given and accentuate it. This is where a knowledge of the different periods is absolutely essential. So homework, as far as the shape goes, is, is the starting point. The color is also something that you arrive at by this looking at people in certain things and seeing what it does to them. Some people can wear red, some can't. Some people can wear yellow. Some just can't because it does terrible things to their skin. So all that you would have learnt by dressing people up as you would with the shape of the thing and bustles, corsets, whatever it takes. Hi. Obviously, working on all of these beautiful period pieces that you have done, um, do you tend to ever make duplicates or any of those outfits, especially because they can be quite expensive to have made? Um, Very rarely duplicates unless they're called for in the script um, because I often use things that there's only one of, and so that would be very difficult. If it's a completely designed outfit, then, you know, you can do that. But if you're using original bits to add into something to make it more authentic looking, for instance, then you're a bit stymied when you come to number two because there's only one of them. Well, my next question was actually, how much do you tend to make for principal casts? For the principal casts? It depends, doesn't it? It depends on what you're faced with. Like remains of the day. Obviously, we've got lots of tailcoats, black waistcoats, striped trousers. So we just put a number of those on Anthony to see how and what they did to him. But I don't think anything was made for him for that. I think those were stock items. And thinking through the film, very little was made I did a lot of dyeing of things. Um, I did a lot of resuscitation to tired-looking jumpers and things for Emma. But I don't think we made a great deal because they're in, like, uniforms in a way. And the more straightforward that uniform can be, the better. Um, I was just wondering how closely you work with like makeup artists and hairstylists because obviously what they do is not only inspired by the period of the film but also the colours in the costume. Um, on the Merchant Ivory films, often we were working with the same people so there's a sort of uh, talk that goes on all the time. I must say on certain things... I haven't particularly agreed with some of the, the hair styles. I'm not that desperate, I have to say, of Uma's hairstyle in when she's wearing the Cleopatra dress. I feel that it overtakes her, her head a bit, but this was something between Uma and, and Carol, who did her hair. Uh, you, in a way, have to let it go. Two sequences from Ang Lee's Sense and Sensibility from 1995. Could you talk a little bit about the conversations you had with Ang Lee and about the look? Because everything seems to just fit. 
This is the man who Hugh Grant called the brute on set. Not you, Ang Lee. Yes, no, no. That's interesting, isn't it? He's such a nice man. Um, (laughs) Sometimes you haven't a clue what he's on about. There was one scene, he, he said, John, you must see this table scene that we're about to shoot. And it was obviously to do with the placing of characters opposite and diagonally opposite each other. And he went round the table and he said, this is this, and this is going to happen, and Kate's going to be there, whatever. And I thought, does he want something changed? What is he, why is he telling me all this stuff? Um, And what I realized at the end of it was he was just clarifying it for himself, but he wanted someone there with him doing it. The feeling on the set always was quite formal, but very gentle and encompassing. And so it was um, a remarkable film to do. And that extended to the producer. And she sat with Ang throughout the filming um, of it. Very occasionally she said, we're seeing a close-up of whatever it was, and could you just do something around here because she looks as though she's disappearing into the bottom of the frame. And so I'd go away and do a little bow or find a brooch or something just to give another point of contact before she went below the, the frame. The Dashwoods throughout, it's very interesting to see that we start off with a death um, and they're in oh, mourning. Yes. yes. And we go through sort of rocky periods around, and it's interesting to see how the Dashwood sisters' clothing changes to reflect that. And at the end, they're, they're much brighter yes. Yes. in terms of the clothing of the sisters. Yes. But also, I didn't realize that Edward Ferris, the Hugh Grant character, yeah. is wearing exactly the same mm. outfit that he first appears in at the start yeah. of the film. And then at the end, and I, was that because his character is honest from the outset and he doesn't change? To a certain extent, that's, that's right, but also he's not that well off, is he? True. <laughs> and so um, I think Hugh is really marvellous in this film. Yeah. And he has this sort of strange way of when he's nervous, his shoulders rise, and that gives him a very vulnerable persona. And I think, in a way if you mess about too much with the clothes, you're going to have a difference for no good reason, because he is standard throughout the piece. Thank you to BAFTA, the BFI, but most of all, can you please join me in thanking John Bright? Thank you very much. That's really important.